Return of Cool. Fuck yeah. Cliff Burton Cool. Shit yeah. Coming Your back. Hell. Oh my god. Here it. we go. <laughs> Kaz is going to kill herself <laughs> before this one's over. No. Hello, friends. This is my favorite episode, probably. We haven't even done it yet, and I'm already deciding it's the best. Um, it's Death by Music Podcast. And today we are talking about Cliff Burton, and it just so happens that the day that we are recording this is the day after the day that Master of Puppets turned 35 years old. It's the day after the day after the day. It was yesterday. Welcome to Death by Music Podcast, everybody. I am Drew, here with Alex and Cassie. And in my opinion, early Metallica is the best, which is the Cliff Burton Metallica. So I'm also pretty excited about this. And Cassie's about to get some metal education. Okay, so looking at the sources for this, honestly, we really didn't use a whole lot because there's a there's not a whole lot of detail online. I mean, Cliff Burton probably has the shortest Wikipedia article of any of the people we have covered or are going to cover. It is fucking small. So that wasn't an option. And then I tried looking up other articles and resources and it just wasn't enough. Um, But I found a book called To Live Is To Die by Tony Bacon, which was really awesome. And that was the main source material for this. I mean, this guy did his research. He interviewed tons and tons and tons of people, friends, family, band members. I mean, guys from other bands, people in the industry, people who are around. And he put together an incredible book. So I use that as the main source and then Wikipedia. And then Cassie's articles here are cracking me up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so like Alex said, there was not a lot of information to go by. So she's like, just kind of like fact check me and figure out. So I was like, okay, because I know nothing about Diddly Squat yeah, anyway. Yeah, she went into it and was like, so, I don't even know what to add to yeah, this. Yeah, I was like, and you I can said, just get my flavor. But, there's probably not a lot to right. add, but go ahead. Try. Um, We got to a point where it got scientific so i did some research there so the article i used was from healthline.com and it's called eating weed mm-hmm. so we'll get there <laughs> it's a little little hard to pick up on that context here but just 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 you wait and then it looks like there's another one from ultimateclassicrock.com nick deriso wrote an article thanks dude Okay, but I do have a question before we start, and that's how the fuck does one band have so many gingers because there was a lot of red hair in Metallica's 1982 lineup. There was James Hetfield, Dave Mustaine, and Cliff Burton. I always thought that Cliff Burton had more, like, brown hair and James Hetfield had more, like, blonde hair. But then I was looking at photos of them from 1982, and they keep describing Cliff Burton as having this bright, fiery red hair. And I was like, maybe it didn't capture in the photos well, but they all are, like, flaming gingers. That's three out of four. So how is James Hetfield blonde now? It just he grew out of that strawberry blonde. Well, I think it's child. like strawberry, I, but he's also old, so I think his hair's graying and it kind of <laughs> takes more of the red old. And you still think he's hot? Ah, uh, he's my babe. Anyway, Moving gingers on. are tortured when they're kids, so so they're tortured adults. When they they when, write better music. When they made a band <laughs> in their teenage angst, it was perfect that they were all gingers. They all related, and then they made sick fucking metal because. They were made fun of redheads as childs. Okay. For those of you who don't know about Cliff Burton, he was the bassist in Metallica. He was only 24 years old when he was tragically killed in a bus accident. So I think he's so far the youngest person that we're talking about, too. He had only been a part of, well, besides Buddy Holly, he had only been a part of Metallica for three years. And despite his short time in the limelight, he was still a household, he is still a household name for metal fans and bassists alike. And there's something about Cliff that was just different. He was a hippie. He had quite eclectic musical tastes from Bach to jazz to metal to REM. Honestly, he wasn't concerned with fitting in with the metalhead look. And he basically made the rules when it came to creating his bass sound in the book to live is to die by Tony Bacon. There's a whole section at the back that's dedicated to other people's quotes about Cliff Burton. One of my favorites comes from Martin Popoff, an author and journalist. What a fun name. <laughs> Martin Popoff. Yes. So he said, Cliff Burton personified the scruffy outsider metalhead look. He just looked like a stoner party guy for whom it was all about being a headbanger. But that would have been an underestimation. He was a sophisticated student of melody, in love with Thin Lizzy and R.E.M., and that made him an excellent songwriter, more so than your average bass player. 
The memorability of those classic, early Metallica songs apparently had a lot to do with Cliff, who was more like the John Paul Jones of the band. Not just that guy over there who plays bass because it's got fewer strings. It's a testimony to his worth that there are actual bass solos on those Metallica records. I was going to say, if you didn't know who John Paul Jones is, he's the bassist and keyboardist for Led Zeppelin. Yes. Nice. It's good that you included keyboard. I found that information. And also... <laughs> that was one of the small That's things Cassie's I found. contribution That's to the it. article That's it. I'm leaving today. now. Bye. Just Don't kidding. forget <laughs> Just them kidding. crooked vultures with Dave Grohl. That's true. I know yeah. you're a Foo Fighters fan. Oh, you should check them out. Cliff Burton played with Metallica between 1983 and 1986. He was a part of three albums that many fans considered to be Metallica's best albums ever, even though they may not have been the most commercially successful at the time. He was a bass virtuoso and played the instruments like a lead guitar. He was universally loved before and after his death. Cliff was creative. He was not afraid to take a risk. And he was very well versed in music theory. His life motto was, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want to do. What an inspiration. <laughs> in my experience, music theory is not something that I'm going to pick choose to do every day because <laughs> they don't tell you anything officially. It's math. I'm not going to do math every day of my life yeah. because it's fun. Well, because the first day of school, my teacher sat down at the piano, played the E.T. theme song, was like, what key is it in? It's a test grade. Go. And I was like, where am I? <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> What's what happening? That was in beginning theory. Oh, yeah. I was like, no, this guy's an asshole. You had a and shitty teacher. He did not come back the next year. That was his first year teaching. Oh, poor guy. Yeah, they let you him go. You got a conservatory type guy. He was the, was like slapping the, the doer, with... not the, the teacher. He could do it, so therefore he could not teach it. Oh, yeah, sounds annoying. like Clint. That's why I don't teach. Oh, Clint wanted to be a, a high school band conductor, and he went to do his student teaching, and he was like, wow, none of these kids actually like music. Yeah. Anyways, we will be getting into the early days and the road to fame with Metallica, the world's best-selling heavy metal band, but as with all of our stories, it's going to end in some serious tragedy. This one's really fucking sad. Uh, it all started in Castro Valley, California, an unremarkable town not far from San Francisco, on February 10th, 1962. Cliff Burton was born to his parents, Ray, who was a highway engineer, and Jan, a school teacher, with two older siblings, Scott and Connie. And while most kids usually learn to walk between 8 and 18 months, Cliff took a long 22. They called him laid back from the start. Once he did hop to it, he was pretty hard to stop. Cliff became interested in reading, music, and sports, and was never one to follow the crowd. If he wanted to do something, he'd do it, and it didn't matter if all of the other kids were playing outside, he would go read a book instead. And what were those books? Oftentimes, classical music books, as his friends later recalled. In third grade, he was reading with an 11th grade comprehension. What the fuck? And uh, he was raiding his parents' classical music collection. Again, what? As a child, Cliff had an accident while he was fishing. He got a hook stuck in his hand and it severed a tendon. Ugh. And then that would be the reason why his picking hand always had a pinky dangling, which some people noticed about the way he played. He played like... He was built for it. He sounds like the perfect <laughs> child, too. <laughs> like No, he really was. He was so disciplined. Wow. So tragically, um, when Cliff was 13 years old, his older brother, Scott, passed away after suffering a cerebral aneurysm. And while Cliff didn't talk about it much, the death affected him majorly, and his drive to succeed in music was fueled as a tribute to honor his brother. After the loss of his brother, Cliff picked up the bass guitar and was determined to be the best that he could be for Scott. And at the same time, he was learning piano. Interestingly, Cliff was not really inspired by other bassists, but rather lead guitarists, and this would come into play with his own writing. He wouldn't confine himself to play a support role. And Cliff was so good that he would often have to switch teachers to actually learn something new on bass. He was practicing for up to six hours a day, and that's nuts for a kid to have that sort of discipline. Eventually, he began learning complex time signatures, which would later be incorporated into Metallica songs. When he was just in high school, Cliff joined his first band. It was a group called Easy Street, and he said in his own words that they, they did wimpy shit, a.k.a. covers. So Easy Street was named after a strip club, and it also featured Jim Martin, who would go on to play guitar in Faith No More, along with Mike Borden, who played drums in, with, with both Faith No More and Ozzy. So their parents were super gracious, and they let them practice rotating between all of their houses. 
Um, usually the parents would leave when they practiced because it would cause such a racket and, you know, they just couldn't stand it. One time Easy Street was accused of killing a baby with the terrible noise. <laughs> so I couldn't actually find evidence to back this up. So screw you for making my computer search history suspicious, like trying to Google like searches of dead children. Did when... Easy Street kill <laughs> oh a baby? God. Yeah. Like... So I think it was because FBI. one of the one of them had like a little baby sister and she like got sick and had to go to the hospital. They were like, it was probably because of that band. I think that's what I read. Because Easy Street? Because they were so loud and crazy. It... They were like, oh my God, she's going to go deaf because of. Yeah. Anyways. It also doesn't hurt. Uh, or it hurts a lot that the name definitely does not make you want to listen to that band. If not someone's like, hey, all. let's go watch Easy Street, I'd be like, fucking hard pass. Yeah, no, not, thank not you. Not doing it, not playing it. Burton continued to play with Jim Martin, the guy from Faith No More. They won a battle of the bands with their new group, Agents of Misfortune, in 1981. And there is a video of this online. It's fucking awesome. Drew, you were there when I was watching it. I watched it. I watched it today, and it's fucking awesome. It was so cool. Cliff was doing bass solos. He was using a wah pedal, which is, like, rare. And then you, you hear... About- the bell tolls, right? Yeah, so you hear early bits of what would become Anesthesia and For Whom the Bell Tolls, which are two iconic Metallica tunes. So at that point, Cliff had gotten into weed, mushrooms, and acid with Jim, and it really shows on that YouTube video. Oh, yeah, he was feeling it. Yeah, I'm sure those all just helped to expand his musical capabilities. I mean, if he knew what he was doing, if he knew what he was like, um, he's a virtuoso doing with music theory, then when you're on like hallucinogenics i can only imagine how that makes your creativity i'm sure he just saw all of the the music he wrote yeah like floating in front of his fantasia and mickey's like pointing to things and he's like yeah the best best way to conquer bass is when you look at look at it like you're holding a wolverine that wants to get away from you but you have to wrestle it you have to scratch its belly scratch its belly you have to tame it you have to tame it are you you on mushrooms right now You have to kill it. Okay. No, and then play its dead body. Killing and taming are two different things. Anyways. I'm going to call Peter. <laughs> okay. No. So Cliff always did what suited him, as I said. His friends would call him as forever being very honest, uh-huh. sometimes too honest. Hmm. Uh, he didn't see the band going anywhere at that point, so he quit once he went off to college. And then he continued his routine of doing what suited him best, which was staying up all night, getting stoned, cooking huge meals for all of his friends, and playing Dungeons and Dragons. What a gem. <laughs> yeah, what he seems gem. like a really special dude. So Cliff vowed to be a successful musician, and nobody doubted his drive or dedication. His parents supported the shit out of him. They told him that they'd give him four more years of living at home, rent and bills paid for. And if he didn't make moderate progress towards being a successful musician, then he would be out on his own. That's that's such cool parents. Yeah. Because that's like a really good exchange. Yeah. They really believed in him. They were like, look, we'll give you some time. We know you're out of college and whatever. Like he should be on his own at this point. They were like. We'll give you some time. Honestly, it's their loss not to have him around. He's cooking dinner every night and playing classical music. No, so he didn't actually live at home. His mom owned um, his mom owned an apartment complex and gave him his own apartment that he could live at for free. That's a setup. Yeah, and she was like, "You can stay here, and as long as you're making progress in music, you're going to be a successful musician one day. And when that day comes, then you can start paying." I mean, it was it was pretty fucking awesome. Love it. So uh, his next group was called Trauma, and they were actually fairly successful. In the meantime, Metallica was somewhere else. They were beginning their formation in late 1981. Metallica's drummer Lars Ulrich put an ad in the paper looking for other metal musicians to jam with. So James Hetfield and one other person responded. Brian Slagle, he's a guy that we mentioned in the Dimebag episode. He was working with Metal Blade Records on a compilation album at that time called Metal Massacre. So Lars asked Brian if they could record a song for the album with James Hetfield on vocals and rhythm guitar. That song was Hit the Lights. At the same time, Burton's band Trauma was recording a track as well for Metal Massacre. Now, Trauma is described as more of a rock band, but they get really mixed reviews. They weren't really heavy or fast enough to be like thrash metal, and they weren't fashionable enough to be glam metal. Is Metallica just considered metal then? Like, are they a subgenre? They are thrash. thrash metal. Not anymore. I would say that they are more just heavy Dad metal rock. now. 
Don't yeah. say Thrash that. is kind of yeah, like punk rock had sex with they, metal. Yeah, it's a little bit rawer. It's faster. It's, it's got fast a lot of driving. Fun. It's like a driving force. So yeah. yes, the, the, and during this time, Metallica started thrash metal. Keep up, Cassie. <laughs> I'm up. I'm and up. Lars has been quoted with like saying he stalked Cliff, like he was like him and uh, Het saw him at. Yeah, the go go. Oh yeah, we'll get there. The um, they they were following him around. They'd seen him. They'd heard of him, and then they they started watching him because they wanted him. Okay, so trauma tried to dress up their on stage game. They had two members wearing big lightning bolts on their shirts, but they were pretty much nerds. They were kind of described as like Judas Priest ish, but their style of music that that style was falling out of popularity at that time. So trauma was they were basically a bunch of posers. And my favorite part is that while they were all trying to chase something, Cliff was still right there. He was just wearing all jeans. Uh, jean bell bottoms that were not cool at all in the 1980s, especially in the age of spandex and skinny jeans. But Cliff he being looks Cliff, cool to me. He still yeah. looks cool to me. Cliff being Cliff didn't give a fuck, and that was what was cool. He well, wasn't trying to dress like them. Well, bell bottoms are back, y'all. They're back now. So yeah. 1980 was out. basically like 2006. I cannot wait for it to come back around again. <laughs> oh, after this pandemic. Somebody make size 11 jellies, damn it. <laughs> I can smell my sister's feet from here. Just by that thought, I can smell that shit. It's so gross. Sweaty jellies. Uh, I tried to find a pair of like light up heels for prom, but they didn't make them in my size. Oh, man. It would have been so cool. Speaking of prom, we're really no. thinking about getting Goodwill prom dresses and going to Olive Garden in, in, in like May. <laughs> If you want to come. prom night, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and if we do it, we'll put pictures on Instagram. Oh my God, I can't Yes. Wait. Here's the part you were talking about, Drew. Hetfield and Ulrich went to see Trauma playing at the Whiskey A Go-Go in 1982. And they had already recruited Dave Mustaine at this point to play guitar. They were impressed after seeing all of his expensive guitar equipment. If you have all this expensive gear, you must be pretty good. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. <laughs> Bro, have you seen my JCM 2000? I'm, I'm the only full stack in town. <laughs> but he was really good at playing, too. Dave Mustaine shreds. I was going to say, were they more impressed by his playing or his, like, stacks? I think first the equipment, and then they were like, okay, yeah, he is pretty good. Well, <laughs> you, gotta, you see the rig, and then, like, if you're looking for a band member, you're like, oh, it's sick rig. And then if he's good, then obviously it's just better. But if you see a guy, and it's like this shitty amp, and you're like, oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. So at the show, at the Whiskey A Go-Go, they heard Cliff Burton shredding anesthesia, which is a bass solo, Cassie. Um, they I sh- thought he was at the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's a crazy bass solo. Um, anyways, they thought cool. that the sound that they were hearing was a guitar, but they later learned that it was just a bass. So they decided to recruit him for Metallica. Um, and by the way, he achieved that lead guitar sound on his Rickenbacker bass by installing a Stratocaster pickup at the front of the bridge. Some of you know what that means. <laughs> I was going to say, I, was, you I went into it and I was like, whatever. <laughs> well, sure. it depends on which pickup because Stratocaster can have like three or four pickups, different types, tons of different pickups. Right. Options. But it was like the a Stratocaster pickup has like a lead guitar sound. Yeah. It's and like so a they humbucker. put that on the bass. He, he did it back then. Now it's like so hip, like Royal Blood. Like that dude is actually a bass player. A lot of people don't oh. know that, but he, he does kind of a similar thing as Cliff Burton. So this this uh, influence has transferred over to even now. Yeah, like, he came up with that. He knew this like guy who worked at a guitar shop and he always went to this guy. Like he never got too good for his local guitar his shop dude. That's and so nice. he went to his dude and he was like hey i have this idea like can you do this and the guy was like what are you talking about and he would just <laughs> describe him these ideas and these sounds that he was trying to get and then they would figure it out together that's cool and so that's how they came up with it yeah so at the time metallica was based in la and cliff burton did decide to join them and quit trauma he thought that they were getting to sound a little too commercial but he would only join metallica if they relocated to san francisco because everything has to go cliff's way so they agreed and they all moved to the metallica mansion while cliff had his own place in a building like i said his mother rented out buildings and he stayed in one of the apartments so cliff meshed well with the other guys but he was always regarded as the more mellow one 
Fun fact, the Metallica Mansion is now a proclaimed cultural landmark in El Cerrito, California. Hmm. It was actually somebody else's house, and he was like, sure, you can stay here. So they just all ended up living there, and then everybody, all their friends would come over, and it just, they just... Why does that happen nowadays? Why why isn't people like, oh, you're in a sick band? Cool, like, live in my house. I don't know, Drew, you're in a band. You should be able to answer the question. People don't let me stay in their mansions. Well, they would play also in the garage, so when they went back to do this whole, like honorable thing with the mayor the garage was smaller and they were like oh it's not the same but like it still looks the same on the outside or whatever oh well here's a fun quote from to live is to die from rob quintana of metal mania magazine he said quote i'd met cliff in december 1982 he was a really nice guy very cool he was the quiet one because dave and james were so fucking loud (laughs) and so was lars who was so over the top dave was always fucked up he was always fucked up by nine o'clock. It took James and Lars a little while to warm up, but by the end of the night, Cliff was the easiest to talk to because he would be the least insanely fucked up. You know what? Now that you mention that, the rest of Metallica are kind of ta boys. Yes, they are. So Cliff doubled down on his practicing. He became even more disciplined after joining Metallica. His mother, Jan, recalled how Cliff would always say, there's somebody in their garage that hasn't been discovered that's better than you are. I mean, that goes to show how calculated and focused he was on his own craft, like always trying to stay a step ahead of potential competition. So competitive. That's that's admirable. Yeah. Yeah. It was super, super admirable how focused he was. Because remember, at this time, he's like 20 years old. Right. And to be that. What male do you know? (laughs) What female? I mean, Jesus. I did that when I was 20. I practiced my, I practiced all the fucking time, but only because I wanted to be the best. It's kind of the same thing. Like when you're that young and. You have all this testosterone and people like they like they they just think you're like some (laughs) some random douche like no one respects you like it does it is motivating to get you into the practice room and he was moving so fucking fast yeah like like his mom was right like he was definitely destined to be in some great band for sure no matter what if it wasn't Metallica it would have been someone else for sure Mm -hmm. so prior to Cliff joining the band they uh, Metallica had recorded a demo titled No Life to Leather. John Zazula of Megaforce Records heard it and had the band move out to New York to record their first album called Kill Em All. You might have heard it before. Their arrival at Johnny Z's house was pretty ridiculous. They showed up with U-Haul at Johnny's expense. They had no money, no place to stay, and were probably still drunk from the trip. And despite the fact that Johnny Z had a wife and a new baby, they stayed at his house and immediately began drinking all of his booze. (laughs) He noticed there was a problem in Dave Mustaine first. Uh, He started getting sick all over the house. And then Mustaine was fired. He had become too aggressive and was going overboard with booze. The guys decided to fire him before they even got to New York. Lars says somewhere between Iowa and Chicago. (laughs) Kirk Hammett of Exodus was, which was another band at the time. Um, Well, they're still a band. Anyways, he was playing in Exodus, who's another thrash group. They have some sick stuff. They, he was recruited to play guitar for Metallica. He learned all of the songs on his flight to the East Coast. Question. This might be dumb. Was he being flown privately? And he No just was, way. Then I don't think so. Who the Absolutely fuck let this man not. sit out there with a guitar and practice these songs? Would have, he just looked at the notes and were like, okay, we're good. I mean, he's really good. I don't okay. know. He was. He's There's no way he was on a private plane. He, I mean, he's a pretty humble guy. He's not like an Yngwie type guitar player. But he yeah, is, but did he look at the sheet music and then be like, okay, I can do this? I think he or, could probably mm-hmm. like figure it out. Or you can. It? I think a guitar counts as a carry-on, too. So if he had enough space on the plane, which I'm sure planes were bigger back then. Cliff and Kirk really hit it off. Um, maybe it was because they were both stoners um, and from San Francisco. And maybe it was because James and Lars were already pretty close. Kirk had seen Cliff play all the way back in his Easy Street days, Aww. and he always admired him. That's so cute. it worked really well. James wanted to lay out song structures, and Lars knew that he wasn't that great at drumming. He knew. So I just want to point that out. Mm. So he focused on songwriting and more on the business side. That gave Kirk and Cliff room to solo and experiment. Because of Cliff's easygoingness, stubbornness, and musical intelligence combined, he was usually the tiebreaker when it came to songwriting disputes. The guys respected his well-educated opinion. Yeah, I mean, as they should. He grew up reading theory 
and like different music books, I think they should respect his opinion in that case. Like, yeah, yeah they absolutely knows stuff. He knows how to play Bach on the bass. Yeah, they <laughs> absolutely did for that reason. And it was actually incredible that Cliff was able to convince the guys to put a four minute bass solo on their debut album. Anesthesia was familiar to some as he started playing bits of it since his Agents of Misfortune days. It was just pretty ballsy, pretty genius, and it's not really been replicated since. So according to rockpasta.com, the bass solo on this track is number two of all time, coming after the Who's My Generation. And (laughs) And in my opinion, probably only because this specific bass line is like one of the first bass solos ever in rock his- like rock history okay but my generation is not an entirely talk to rockpasta.com i didn't make rock- this list uh in metal i i might agree with that like well, that was like one of the first recorded like mm-hmm. like bass solo tracks I, I can't think of anyone else in that genre that I don't know. <laughs> My brain wants to read it as bass so hard, but I know it's It bass. was the sickest bass pro shop <laughs> solo I ever heard. All I'm saying is My Generation is not a bass solo in itself. It's a whole ass song. Anesthesia has no words, no lyrics. It is a straight up four minute long bass solo. Love it. Yeah, I don't think they compare. Anyways. Uh, Wait, Anesthesia is just bass? The yeah. whole song is a bass solo. Never heard it. I agree. More of that, though. Like, I want to see more bands just like solo tracks dude initially the album was to be called metal up your ass and the album artwork was a toilet with a hand reaching out of the bowl holding a dagger the label unsurprisingly did not like the album art cliff said you know what we should just kill them all man so kill them all became the new title so you're telling me the calmest one in the band is already <laughs> threatening their label but he was like we should just kill them all man oh it was like a jake response yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> the album was the first thrash metal album to be released in the United States, and it sold 60,000 copies worldwide, and Metallica went on tour. So for those of you that are ignorant to thrash metal like me, it's an extreme subgenre of heavy, heavy metal music. Hell yeah, it is. Characterized by its overall aggression and often fast tempo. Often fast? Mm-hmm. That's Always what fast. the internet says. So the <laughs> song usually use or the songs usually use fast percussive beats and low register guitar riffs overlaid with shredding style lead guitar work. Thanks, Wikipedia. Hooray. So Kill 'Em All didn't actually chart until 1986 when their third album, Master of Puppets, became commercially successful. It was significant in its own right just by the sheer speed. The guys wrote the songs at normal speed, but um, like I said, Lars... Not so good. And he had a tendency to unknowingly play faster and faster live. Like, he didn't have the whole internal metronome thing. Can I just say that's every drummer, and you have to teach yourself not to do that? Okay, well, I don't think he taught himself how to do it. So they wrote them a certain speed, and then Lars would just... On not even realizing, start playing faster and faster and faster and faster. The Kill 'Em All songs were recorded at an even faster speed than they were written, and when it came to playing them live, they <laughs> somehow managed to play them faster still. So, how does a band know to keep up with that? They just end up inadvertently also you just playing go faster. Off of the drummer, yeah. Well, and here's the thing about practicing the same song and over and over again mm-hmm. is it gets easy for everyone over time. You lock it into muscle memory, sure. and it's all good. And when you rehearse it, you want to challenge yourself more. And it's like, it's so natural for especially drummers to do that. That's why you play with click tracks like all the time. That's why you like form control mechanisms because it is once you have something down, it's Mm -hmm. just a natural instinct to, to speed it up. Yeah. And then the band doesn't even really know you're speeding it up. And they because don't they're all either. comfortable too, <laughs> and then you listen back to the shit, and you're like, "What the fuck are we doing? Right. Like that's like like 50 BPM faster than we played <laughs> it originally." So, so there is like a job of the drummer that is constantly having to like wrangle that. I don't know how you do it. Um, metronomes. Basically, it was really fucking fast. Oh yeah, we'll take this moment to tell you to go listen to the playlist, which Cassie did not put together. <laughs> You're <today>. welcome. <laughs> I did. So their first real tour was with Raven. Raven are a he- English heavy metal band formed in 1974 by the Gallagher brothers, bassist and vocalist John and guitarist Mark. They have released 14 studio albums to date, which is surprising because I've never heard of them. And it had a hit single with On and On. Not well, saying I've ever heard of every band ever, but like 14 listen. albums. You don't listen to metal. Okay, so anyone else that's listened, just ignore me. <laughs> 
fine. All right. And I was loving this quote from James from the book about this tour. He says, Raven and Metallica in a Winnebago from East Coast to the West. There were really horrible smells on that bus as there was a lot of drinking, puking, and fucking going on. Oh, what? <laughs> oh, yeah, they were, they were fucking. He says, you would have to get drunk to actually fall asleep on that thing. It was so horrible. We would always fight for the top bunk. The air conditioner broke down somewhere in Texas, so it was about 200 degrees when you woke up. Raven weren't really drinkers, but we got their drummer drunk on the last show, and he went completely nuclear and started smashing up the place. I think we were all pretty good at being pigs. Lars has got to be a bit more of a pig than anyone else. I don't know if it had something to do with him being Danish or being an only child, but I don't think they had soap in Denmark. It's both. I think I can, <laughs> I can really... That's such a such an accurate description, like such a, such a photographic description in my nose. <laughs> like I can just be out. I can just put myself there. I see all the crop tops and the cut off t shirts and I just smell the pits the mixed with the grundle, mixed with uh, the, the, the massive need for whiskey. for taintance and showering that's can't happen. And the barf. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's, it's perfect. And it's the acidity of Baby the, wipes. Yeah. It's a beautiful quote. Baby wipes. So um, speaking of Denmark, that's where they went to record their next album, Ride the Lightning. It's kick-ass. Spoiler. Why did they go there? Um, well. Because it's the birth of metal. Because it was cooler. Um, they didn't have any studios in America that could quite sustain the level of production that they wanted because this sort of metal or like heavy metal was already being produced in europe heavily it wasn't as big over here yet okay so it made sense for them to go over that answers my question later because i okay first they went on a european tour with venom an extreme metal band from england the guys were very surprised to see that kill em all did much better in europe than in the u.s and fans on that side of the water were clinging on to 100th generation tapes of their demo no life to leather they had a bunch of diehard fans in europe so after the tour they settled in to record uh they didn't take any breaks which is pretty incredible for a bunch of 20 and 22 year olds that was my next question so I, when i was reading through this and daniel was next to me and i was like why does metal do better when it's not in the u.s and he was like that's because people in america don't know what real music is <laughs> and he went on this rant I and i was like He's not i wish wrong. he was here because he would have i mean no, he probably it, wouldn't not have talked on this but he has a rant and I it went like on it, for like five minutes and i was I like, like i shouldn't it. have no, asked you i feel I like, like it, it really started in europe there's something before all of this that i didn't even address called the new wave of british heavy metal which was like the judas priest the iron maiden the, like all of these incredible bands came out of england and then okay. you know then german bands started popping up uh, in 1984 the band went on tour with twisted sister and <laughs> released another critically acclaimed album this one was ride the lightning so the album was lauded as mature imaginative and far from cliche metallica had grown and rounded out their sound since their previous album they avoided sounding just like every other metal band much of that progress can be credited towards cliff he wasn't really a part of songwriting on the first album but had since taught james ideas in composition and theory so compared to uh ride the lightning kill em all really just sounds like a bunch of drunk kids making noise not so far off i mean yeah that was pretty much that's what they were (laughs) carrie king of slayer remarked that while his group was still trying to figure out what their sound would be metallica had already figured it all out cliff burton was credited with writing contributions on six of eight songs on ride the lightning they figured out the sound but like they weren't making any money it was tough that's fair i mean i guess when you don't have proper weight channels of touring in the united states at the time yeah and you know their albums were expensive to make too they weren't looking at the grand scheme of things they might be doing successful for a metal band but then right. that's the thing that's not they're metal a metal bands, band metal <laughs> they're bands not are historically yeah. use and very good at being broke yes. you know like they they're just that's their nature yeah they okay. were dirt poor they would eat one meal a day sleep over at fans houses at night while they were on tour you know they'd been staying with their manager but he kicked them out for being too rowdy One night, Metallica's gear was stolen after a show in Boston, and that was a huge low point for everybody. Um, James Hetfield's first amp was taken with the lot, and that was one that his mother had bought him before her death. Mm. She died when he was just a teenager. 
um, and that really, really, really affected him. She bought him that amp and it was gone. They couldn't even find a replacement. Um, so in a depressed state, he wrote Fade to Black. There was one notable stop on their European tour for Ride the Lightning between West Germany and Holland. So the bus was stopped overnight at the border by guards with automatic weapons. Cliff was asleep on the top bunk amidst the ruckus and <laughs> drug dogs uh, started drug sniffing dogs boarded the bus and began shoving their noses into everything and the band had brought with them quite a few things that they probably shouldn't have Meh. cliff himself had one or two grams of hash once he was finally awoken by the noise he realized what was going on and decided it would be best for him to swallow all of it as he choked it down the dogs sniffed right past him somehow they did not catch a whiff a whiff of cliff in the book <laughs> <laughs> a whiff of cliff okay dr seuss i just came up with that i know <laughs> it's not in here and i was like she didn't write that out <laughs> next so, week uh death by music podcast whiff of cliff shirts coming out crop top they're gonna Fine. smell like body odor Fine. yes they're, they're gonna come pre-scented with armpit sweat you're welcome and puke okay so in the book it says that they actually got out of that whole endeavor with uh without a trace and as the night went on cliff was higher than he had ever been so i tried to search if you can actually mm. get high from eating raw hash <laughs> my brief research said no so i passed this one off to cassie okay, so apparently he just didn't have enough time to make some butter but yes you can eat weed it's, you can eat anything you can eat anything if you put it in your mouth and chew it and swallow it sometimes you don't even have to chew it you just swallow anyway <laughs> okay cassie in fact marijuana infused foods and drinks have been consumed throughout history as far back as a thousand bc they have edible applications um they basically were prescribed to treat various conditions from chronic pain to digestive disorders hmm. now Raw weed will not have the same effect as consuming marijuana-based products, as marijuana has to go through the process known as dec mm -mm. decarboxylation. That sounds right. Decarboxylation. Yeah. Decarboxylation. Okay. Decarboxylation. To become activated. So raw marijuana contains tetrahydrocannabonic. <laughs> what is that word? <laughs> the way you said catabonic. <laughs> Tetrahydrocannabonic. That was metal. Tetrahydrocannabinolic. Tetrahydrocannabinolic acid. You're welcome. Oh, THC. Yes, A. exactly. That's THC. what it stands for. Yes. No wonder why That's no stoner why nobody knows. Nobody says it. That's okay. why and then there's the cannabidolic acid. Okay, so just say it has CBD. THC and CBD. Okay, so raw marijuana contains THC and CBD. Perf. So compounds that must be exposed to heat, such as in smoking or baking, turning it into active forms, the THC and the CBD, need to, they need to be activated by some some source of heat. Okay, cool. I mean, if his mouth was real hot, sure, but I don't think that's the case. Maybe. Yeah. After I eating don't know. that, it I don't know. It didn't make sense. No. They all claimed that he was high for pretty much three days, and it even interfered with their Amsterdam show. They said Cliff started experiencing stage fright and becoming paranoid. Yeah. But... Maybe he, maybe it was an edible. I don't know. In the book, it said he had just a, just a big lump of hash. So is hash, I mean, hash is the same thing as cannabis, isn't it? Uh, no, it's a little different. It's, it's, it's a high it's concentration, like, but yeah. I mean. So here's the thing about hash. You guys know, we don't know anything about drugs. We've never been around drugs a day in our lives. Never. Never. <laughs> so if you eat it, that can certainly, ha that's actually happened to hash? me before. Uh, uh, no, You've done not, drugs? Not with hash, with marijuana. Uh, I ate so much <laughs> by accident. Oh, like an edible. Uh, yeah, I ate, I ate the equivalent of three quarters of an ounce of Yes, weed. but what she's saying is it's different with an edible than just eating raw Absolutely. Hash. Can I tell you that I googled hash, can you eat it? And then there's like an article <laughs> three. Browns. Yeah, no, it says... How to eat corned beef hash. <laughs> really? So, I mean, it, we're probably wrong. So, if we're wrong, this is one time. This is the one time I'm going to ask you to tell us. We'd love your thoughts. So, their second album cost around $30,000 to make, and John Zazula could no longer afford to foot the bill. Metallica's European label ended up paying for the album, and they split ways with Megaforce Records. Soon after, Metallica and Anthrax opened up for a show for Raven, where Elektra employees witnessed greatness 
and decided to sign the band. Wow. It was perfect timing and a perfect label for them. Elektra had a history of letting its bands have creative control, like the Doors and the Stooges. So at that moment, they only had two other metal bands, which were Dokken and Motley Crue. So Metallica knew that they would get in on the money, and then they'd also get tons of support from the label, since their metal acts were few. Money. Uh, when the boys returned back to the Bay Area, they were greeted by the leeches that come through with fame. Metallica had been a garage band. They were underground. That's how they started. But as soon as they became successful worldwide, all of the bums came out of the woodwork trying to use them to get backstage and get tickets for shows and just get into places that they shouldn't be. So when Metallica said that, sorry, we can't pull any strings for you, then they'd get the whole... Oh, look at you, rock star. You forgot the little guy. Ugh. Which, by the way, don't do this shit. People who are truly friends don't try to use you and take advantage of you. They just understand that, you know, okay, you can't get me backstage. That's fine. It's nothing happening back there anyway. Yeah, there's nothing fun happening back there. Metallica started um, to catch a bad rap because they became successful. Like, if your goal isn't to succeed as a band, then what's the fucking point? So so some nerds act like it's only for them. And then, oh, you guys got famous, and oh, now you care about all these people, and you don't care about us anymore. Like, shut the fuck up. Do you like the music or not? I mean, I think Watch it's the show. ridiculous. They worked so hard, and they're finally getting the recognition, but also the pay that they deserved, and they're already being called sellouts. Right. Like, what, how like, is that fair? Just, when you're fuck? younger, you're just... <laughs> they're like, we're poor. <laughs> you're just angry at that. It's obviously jealousy. Yes. You're just angry at that person's success and you know people get pretty destructive in that standpoint that's like a maturity issue obviously once yeah. you get older you're like oh there is like no selling out there's just bettering yourself you know and trying to be more successful in life right. so you don't have to live like a piece of shit next came one of the greatest and most influential heavy metal albums of all time master of puppets uh, once more, they took to Denmark to record. And this one was credited mostly to Hetfield and Ulrich. They started writing a song by weaving together different guitar parts that they had taped. And then once the guitar basics were down, they would come up with a title and a theme for the song. Uh, Master of Puppets featured many political themes like power, control, abuse, oppression, and war. All intertwined in complex and intricate musical arrangements. Um, one of the reasons why... I think that this album is so incredible is because of the honesty, their social consciousness and the storytelling. They're not just songs. You can fight me. Sure. Listen to all eight minutes of Master of Puppets. You're going on a journey. We're going to fight. It's a great, great record. Yes. Way up there. That and Ride the Lightning. Metallica spent a lot of the early part of 1986 explaining to their fans how sophisticated they'd become, um, how their musical tastes had expanded. They'd all become better musicians, and the new album was going to reflect that. So they were kind of like trying to brace them that it would be different. Typical metalheads were pissed that they weren't doing the fast and hard stuff of kill them all. Uh, they were in an uncertain place, though. They were feeling a little bit self-conscious about their you know, change in sound and how their new album would be received. What's funny now is that like Master Puppets is pretty still, it's very thrashy comparatively, you know? Like. I mean, it's still really heavy, but it's nothing like Kill 'Em All. So James correctly says, there's more to our music than that. We have those songs in that set already, but sitting there and worrying about whether people are going to like the album, therefore we have to write a certain kind of song. You just end up writing for someone else. If everyone was the same, it would be boring as shit. And then Cliff commented, I think you can safely say that we've matured musically, if not in any other way, over the past few years. Once Hatfield and Ulrich laid out the bones for most of the songs, they invited Hammett and Burton to rehearsals to fill in the rest. The album was going to be epic, so Metallica took to Ulrich's home of Denmark to record. American studios just wouldn't be able to handle it properly. At that time, Metallica's members seemed oblivious to how influential their album would actually become. For this one, despite their reputation of drinking, uh, they actually stayed sober. And um, they would be sober on recording days. They worked through it piece by piece. They developed a sense of perfectionism. The album art was iconic, too. It was a cemetery of cross-shaped white gravestones strung together by puppeteer strings with two hands controlling it all. Descended from a bloody red sky. I got you that shirt one year for Christmas. Yeah, you did. Yeah. Thanks. That's a good gift. You're welcome. It was a good gift. I still wear it all the time. 
Uh, so, we mentioned Tipper Gore in the Parents Music Resource Center several times before. Metallica used this album to mock them. On the cover was a sticker stating, The only track you probably won't want to play is Damage Incorporated due to the multiple use of the infamous F-word. Otherwise, there aren't any shits, fucks, pisses, cunts, motherfuckers, or cocksuckers anywhere on this record. Mm. And that was slapped right on the front cover. Nice. The album spent 72 weeks on the Billboard album charts. It won Metallica their first gold album certification and eventually went six times platinum. <laughs> Yes. 1986 was a good year for metal. Not only did we get Master of Puppets, we also got Megadeth's album, Peace Sells But Who's Buying, Slayer's album, Rain and Blood, and in mm. 87, Anthrax released Among the Living. It was arguably the peak for the big four thrash legends. And yes, all of that's going to be on the playlist. All of these bands were catching up to Metallica, but they had to do something to stay on top. Interesting strategy for promoting here. Instead of releasing a music video or even a single, Metallica decided to just go on a huge tour. They began opening in the U.S. for Ozzy Osbourne, getting fucked up with booze constantly, and playing arenas finally for the first time. This is actually where the Alcoholica nickname came into play. The band would wear t-shirts saying, Drank them all. Heading into 1986, Cliff seemed mature beyond his years. He wasn't engaging in any of the drunken antics with the rest of the band. He preferred to watch more soberly, and he had quite a business sense as well. He had also begun dating a girl named Corinne, who he met at an Iron Maiden show. He began to fall deeply in love with her, and he was just on a different plane than the other guys. So with the release of Master of Puppets, Cliff's parents felt that he had held up his end of the deal. Remember, become successful within four years. Yeah, yeah. So he did it. I mean, in 1986, he would, I mean, he's opening for Ozzy, which is... Right. You made it. Um <laughs> In 1986, that was what Metallica felt was their year zero, and in some ways it was, just not how they expected. Nevertheless, his parents were very proud of Cliff for making it. This third album would cement them in their fame, and while they weren't rich per se, they were definitely thriving off of their music and touring. On the tour, the first of many accidents began when James Hetfield had a skateboarding mishap. He broke his wrist. Uh, they had to recruit one of their guitar techs to fill in on rhythm guitar for several dates, which was probably a dream come true for him. Yeah, not for James, though. <laughs> Every guitar tech's dream. Yeah, I was going to say, what what guitar tech doesn't wait for the moment when they have to go on stage and fill in for their 15 did minutes of fame? Did he go on fame? stage, or did he just like stand in the tech section and No, play? they pushed him on stage. He thought he should just stand in the back, and they were like, no, dude, get out there. Like, fuck it, go. That's so awesome. So that tech was John Marshall, and he went on to play in Metal. Metal Church. Metal Church is an American heavy metal band. Uh, they originally formed in San Francisco, California in 1980 before relocating to Aberdeen, Washington the following year and briefly using the name Shrapnel. Nice. <laughs> That's right. also metal. Thank you, Cassie. They sound, <laughs> they sound pretty grindy. Mm, no, they're more like, I would say more like mm, melodic-y, power-y. Okay. Um, before heading to their European tour, Metallica was sat down after a show in Hampton, Virginia. Oh, no big deal. Just name dropping a Coliseum. state. Coliseum. Right. Yeah. yeah, they played again. at the Coliseum and then they sat down afterwards and they were told that they'd each made enough to buy a house. Cliff was in disbelief, but they didn't want to buy any houses. They wanted to play shows. So they continued to Europe. This sounds like like when you play the game of life, it's like, you've made enough money to buy a home. <laughs> or what is that? That's what got a meeting. It, yeah, that that's is a really what it is. weird. That's meeting. what they do with pop stars, young people. They're like, okay, you have enough money to buy a house now, They're and it's just like binding. Them I don't think contracts. they were telling them to buy a house. I think they were saying, can you believe how much money you have right now? <sighs> you have enough money that each of you guys could afford to buy a house. And they were like, holy shit, we've been homeless pretty much this whole time. That's crazy. It was that really is amazing. Meaningful. That's a cool meeting. That's a good reason to have a meeting. Yeah. Well, they were like, nah, fuck it. Let's go to Europe. So sure. they continued on. And on that tour, Burton, Hetfield, and Hammett discussed firing their drummer, Lars. Uh, he's the guy who started the band. I had no idea about this before any of this research. Wow, me neither. Yeah, that discussion never got to happen because 
Tragedy struck in the middle of the night on September 26th, 1987. Yes, so I did a little background digging and researched why they were going to kick him out. According to Scott Ian of Anthrax in his bio, he wrote... I didn't ask why they were going to kick Lars out. I figured it was because they wanted a better drummer. Hmm. But apparently there was also a lot of business related stuff going on behind the scenes that they weren't thrilled with. Um, Kirk Hammett also confirmed that he and uh, Cliff told Ian that they couldn't take being in a band with him anymore and were done putting up with them. I think he was also like super annoying. I think he's notorious for being annoying. He's by far the most, I guess, animated I, I said to da boy earlier but he's yeah. like definitely like the most look at me look at me look at me but the least out of all of them to just work on his shit you know so that's yeah. frustrating if you're in a band with someone that's like you're not gonna practice you're not gonna try to be better as a musician he wanted to be the star but he didn't want to put in the work kind of that's how i look at it it's gonna get sad now Mm, I'm serious. So that night, Metallica had given some interviews for OK Magazine in Sweden. Cliff spoke candidly, unpretentiously, saying that he didn't know where Metallica would go next. He accurately predicted that their next direction would be more mellow, which came out in the Black Album. After his interview, it was off to soundcheck and a pretty smooth show. After that, the band and crew hopped on two separate buses and a truck to make the overnight drive to Copenhagen. As mentioned at the beginning of our story, the guys would flip a coin or cut a deck to get the semi-comfortable top bunk on the bus. Sure enough, Cliff won the top bunk that night on the right side of the bus next to the window. Now, it was a British bus, so the driver was actually on the right side, the same side as Cliff, and it appeared to have been converted. They they said that there used to be seats running down either side of the bus, but they took some steps out on the left side and converted that space into bunk beds and moved some shit around. It was just kind of like put together. So they had nine people on the bus. They had the band, three roadies, a manager, and the driver, whose name was never released. All they said about the driver is that he was around 50 years old. The band was traveling south on E4 nearly two-thirds of the way to Copenhagen when the bus started to drift. Everybody was asleep. After all, they'd just done a show and it was an overnight drive. The driver ended up trying to correct the drift, but the bus went on and fishtailed. The back end of the vehicle swung out. Tires were skidding over gravel. The bus flipped onto its right side, collapsing the bunks on the left. It happened in less than 10 seconds. The cold 6 a.m. Swedish sun greeted them, and as people recovered to survey the damage, um, in, in this instance, the bus being British provided to be an escape on the left side once it had tipped. So when people were trying to crawl out they ended up crawling out off of the top which was on the left side james had been thrown out of the back window of the bus while the manager escaped through the left hand door he crawled over the collapsed bunks lars ended up breaking a toe two roadies were trapped underneath the bunks everyone was in shock apparently except for james he was walking around the bus to see what happened and to his horror he saw cliff's legs sticking out from underneath the bus Mm. right on top it was just right on top of him so the bus driver tried yanking out a blanket from underneath cliff to give to the others uh who were freezing and half naked in the roadway who does that like what the fuck are you doing i thought they were gonna say he was pulling the blanket to like try and get Get him out out. but no he just wanted the blanket that's so obviously in shock he was Mm. That's true. Um, so did you say that Het got thrown out the back window? Yeah, James Hetfield was thrown out the back of the bus. Shit. So he was out and everybody else had to climb out. He was just ejected. What the um, fuck? So James was pissed. He yelled at the driver to stop. He knew that Cliff was already dead. Um, he was livid, screaming at the driver. The driver was like, I hit black ice. And James Hatfield was in his underwear. He marched up and down the road. He was unable to find any black ice. The journalist who interviewed Cliff the previous days also says that they don't get black ice there. It was September. It was the end of summer. They investigated the bus to determine if there had been some sort of mechanical issue, but there was nothing. No blown tires, no steering, no brake issues. The next theory was that the driver must have been drunk or tired. Mm. Now, the driver was arrested and questioned as a crane was brought to remove the bus from Cliff's body. Ambulances came to take the survivors to a nearby hospital. An hour or so later, 
the second bus, because remember they were traveling with two buses and a truck. The second bus pulled up at the scene of the tragedy. They were completely unaware of what just happened. They had no idea. The crane began to lift the bus off of Cliff's body. People were still holding on to any hope that he still might have been alive. But all of that hope dissipated when the bus slipped and dropped back onto him. Are you kidding me? Nope. The driver fell asleep. Well, he's definitely, yeah. The driver fucking fell asleep because when you're driving and you fall asleep, I've done it before, unfortunately. Like when you wake up, you try to correct immediately because you're jolted. That's a thing too that they disputed there there were several accounts of him being very well rested he wasn't tired he didn't appear to be groggy um he was fine he was sleeping all day while the band was performing it just it seems like especially just fucked up the excuse of black ice means like says that it was something else yeah i think he just i think he just fucked up um so by 7 30 a.m cliff's body was removed the anonymous driver was released the very next day from police custody. They were satisfied with his interview and determined that he was not drunk, nor had he fallen asleep at the wheel. The survivors canceled the remaining tour dates and flew home within a few days. Now, the guy who wrote the book actually called up the local police station years later to get records from the incident, but they had all been lost. Mm, imagine that. Yeah, and that happened in 2003. Go figure. So, one minute... He was on top of the world. And the next minute, Cliff Burton was completely gone without a clue. I mean, typically you hear of rock stars kind of snuffing themselves out after recklessness, drug abuse, foolish behavior. But this guy was the responsible one. He was unfairly taken in an instant. And his parents lost their second son. Their first kid, remember, died when he was 16. Yeah, he was so young. So now they had lost two of their three children, which is so sad. Um, As the news traveled, many people thought that it was false or it was a joke. You know, there were constantly rumors of people being dead and even still, um, I mean, that happens all the time. And then they have to go on Twitter and say like, nope, I'm still here. But for many people, reality didn't set in until they saw it in the newspaper. One of the last close people to Cliff to hear the news was his girlfriend, Corinne. She had been seeing one of Cliff's favorite bands, R.E.M., and he was, you know, jealous that he couldn't be there to go see. Uh, but there was, there ended up being lightning, so the show was canceled. Uh, she recalled Michael Stipe coming out on stage and saying, they're not going to let us play because they're afraid that we might die tonight. Later on, she attempted to reach Cliff's hotel room. She was always calling him when he was on tour. But the receptionist said that the band hadn't checked in yet. So she knew something wasn't right. The next night, her roommate told her the news. Cliff Burton had died around 7 a.m. on September 27th, 1986 at 24 years old. Mm. Um, The guys, they were beaten up in crutches and casts and attended his funeral ceremony on October 7th. He was cremated and his ashes were scattered at the Maxwell Ranch. If you travel to Sweden near the scene of the crash, you'll find a memorial stone for Cliff that reads, Cannot the Kingdom of Salvation Take Me Home? Which is a line from Metallica's tribute song for Cliff, To Live is to Die. Other tributes for Cliff include In My Darkest Hour by former Metallica guitarist Dave Mustaine's band, Megadeth. Anthrax also dedicated their album Among the Living, while Metal Church dedicated The Dark. In 2009, Metallica was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Jason Newstead and Rob Trujillo, Metallica's later bassists, were inducted as well as their original bassist, Cliff Burton. His father, Ray, accepted the award on Cliff's behalf. Mm. And that is the story of Cliff Burton. What a shame. God damn it. Why? So fucking sad. Yeah, like why take him? Like out of everyone, like. Well, no, that's not fair to say. I mean, sorry. I've seen it all the time where people make jokes and they're like, "Why didn't you take Lars?" Because everybody hates Lars. I know that's an anger. It's fucked up react. thing to say, though. It's mm-hmm. an anger. It's an anger react. But if it sucks that he never got to see what he was just on the way up. They were like so close to like being the biggest metal band in the world. Well, they are. They are now. He, I mean, he but, truly accomplished, even though he died at 24, he accomplished everything. He is one of the greatest bassists in the yeah. world. Well, they it, are the most famous metal band in the world. He just didn't be, get to experience that. They wouldn't be that without Kill 'Em All, Ride the Lightning, and Master Puppets. Right. And he did die. You know, he got to do the touring. He got to do what they were doing and start experiencing that. Special boy, for sure. Very sad. 
Yeah. We made it. We're here at the end. That is the story of Cliff Burton. Good dude. Go listen to those Metallica records on Spotify, on our playlist. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm just going to put like the three full albums up there. Plus, uh, Try we've got to find put it. some Metal Church, Anthrax, Megadeth. Anyways, the playlist is going to be fucking awesome. So make sure that you guys listen to it. Um, you, If you like metal... You haven't listened to the Dimebag Daryl episode. That's from season one. Check it out. Oldie but a goodie. We've also got a John Bonham episode. Mm, My guy. And not that Lars is ever going to listen to this, but I don't hate you, Lars. I know a lot of people shit on you. I don't hate you. I don't hate you. He looks like um, like a foreign Phil Collins. He is a foreign Phil Collins. Oh, God. He's never going to hang out with us now. No, I I think he's... Did you want that? Yeah, he I would started love to Metallica. He deserves some credit. Like, he gets the Ringo treatment, which is not fair because Ride the Lightning and Master Puppet's drumming is sick. Kill 'em all drumming is sick. He's not terrible when it comes to placement. It's just live, I think. You know. Thank <laughs> you guys so much for listening. This has been another episode of Death by Music podcast. Do all the social media stuff. Facebook, review us, follow us on Spotify. We have stickers. Yep, yeah, t-shirts. Hooray. Maybe we'll do, we should do a beer mug or something. That would be badass. Yeah, we should do a beer mug. Shot glasses. Shot glasses, even better. All right, friends. Rest in peace. Mate. So the Matendas boys. Later, nerds. Music by Demons, at Demons Band on Instagram. Graphic arts by Mike Johnson. Writing by Alex Motler and Cassie Gardner, with assistance from Drew Orton.